Good evening, congregation, and welcome once more to the worship of our God this Lord's Day evening. It is good to be in the presence of our God once more, to worship Him, to sing praises to Him, and also to be instructed as to how as Christians we are to live our lives. I do have two announcements for you uh, before we begin this afternoon. Firstly, I would like to extend a Thank you to Deb and the Congregational Life Committee in putting together that wonderful potluck that we were able to have after the morning service. And we also had a wonderful presentation from Katie DeYoung. So we extend a thank you to Deb and her team there. And I also have the privilege uh, of announcing and making known that uh, a new covenant member uh, we look forward to being added to our midst. We want to congratulate Michael and Jessa and their expecting of another little one in the near future. So congratulations to them, and I know that they need your prayers as they prepare for another little one. With all those in mind, and we want to remember all these things in prayer, we want to now give our attention to God's call to worship. We'll invite you to stand for God's call this afternoon. From the fifth psalm, the seventh verse. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, and I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. We do confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. I'll I'll ask if you would now bow your heads with me as we pray for God's greeting this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray that grace, mercy, and peace would be ours through Jesus Christ our Lord and by the operation of your Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll invite you to remain standing if you're able and turn in our blue Psalter hymnal to hymn number 302. We'll remain standing and sing all the stanzas of 302. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good. Hymn 302.
confession of faith this evening will be the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed from uh, page 4 in the black of the back of the blue Psalter hymnal. The reason we'll look at the Nicene Creed this evening is because the Apostles' Creed will be included in Lord's Day 7, our meditation this evening. So together with one voice, we'll confess the Nicene Creed on page 4 of the blue Psalter hymnal. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And we'll respond this evening by turning... Uh, back in our Blue Psalter hymnal to hymn number 463, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. And we'll sing stanzas 1, 2, and 3. 1, 2, and 3 of He leadeth me. 463.
this time in our worship service, we want to now bow our heads in a time of congregational prayer. We want to continue to lift up the needs of this congregation, but we also want to lift up the needs of the congregation of God that exists around the world. We still know that our brothers and sisters in Christ in various lands suffer great persecution simply for loving the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll invite you not only to bow your heads with me, but to also lift them up in prayer. Let's pray together. O Lord, we come to you this evening thankful to be in the house of God as we sang in our pre-service song, Psalm 84. Oh, that we could be but a a bird who can dwell in your presence all the day long, just as they did in the tabernacle of old. Yet, Lord, we know that for many of us we are weary travelers and that we this evening are in need of your ministering grace. We know that this world is full of traps, it is full of Satan's temptations, and we even have to do battle with our own flesh. But we thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence and sing your praises and hear of your word, which may be convicting unto us, yet, Lord, you still pronounce your benediction upon us. You pronounce upon us that you have loved us in Jesus Christ and that we have peace through him. And so, Lord, we pray this evening as we consider the subject of faith and a true faith, a wholehearted trust in you, that you would help our faith. Help us, Lord, to see through the traps and the guises of the devil, and that we might have victory over him, that we might have victory over sin, over death, and over hell, and that you would give us all that we need in order to be faithful Christians, even in this day and every day of our lives. We pray, Lord, for the firmness of Jesus, that His zeal and the energy of His Spirit may be ours, and that You would work in us a devotion to Your kingdom, O God. You would work in us courage in Your name. You would work in us Your love and Your grace. Heavenly Father, we do want to pause for a moment this evening and give You thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you have been pleased to grant more covenant children to this congregation. Especially thank you for Michael and Jessa Deemer and the news that they are now expecting this little one in the near future. Lord, we ask your blessing upon them, especially be with Jessa as this little one grows within her and you knit this little one together in her womb. Lord, remind us that each child is fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, we give you thanks. We also thank you, Lord, for Holly and Isaac and the little one we can anticipate in a few months from them as well, Lord. Ask your, we ask your blessing upon them as well for Joel and Jolene. Lord, we thank you that you continue to grow the kingdom of God even just in this congregation. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would be with each of the little ones, the little children who are here this evening in the same way. Father, we also want to lift up unto you the needs of the persecuted church. We have heard reports from around the world of those who are even willing to join, uh, or even willing to, excuse me, to lay their life down for the sake of Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our brothers and sisters in Indonesia, as there are officials, uh, government officials, who are protesting against uh, the church there. We pray, God, that you would intervene mightily and that you would allow churches uh, to be planted and to grow 
in the land of Indonesia, that you would break down any barriers that these government officials might put up to the kingdom of God. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might win sinners in Indonesia to your peace and your love. And also think of the government there. I pray, Heavenly Father, for their salvation, that you would win them from Satan, the evil one, and that the government and the church might work together in a way in order, for the, in order to achieve peace in the country. Lord, we also continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Myanmar, as we've heard that a theological college was shelled by the military. Thank you, Lord, that there didn't seem to be too much damage, that there wasn't any lives lost, although there was four young men who were injured. But Lord, it's in these reports where we were reminded of the militancy of the world against your church, O oh God. We pray, Lord, for their protection. And we pray for their comfort. And we ask, Heavenly Father, like we prayed for Indonesia, that you might bring the government to their knees there in subjection and respect and honor of the church and love for Jesus Christ. Likewise, we also pray for our brothers of, and sisters in China. We know that the government there works so hard against the church. Yet, Lord, it seems that as hard as they work, Lord, your spirit is still doing its work there. And you are bringing many believers, and, uh, believers to the church, allowing them to worship and bringing many unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that ancient dictum. The seed or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as the government in China continues to persecute the church there, that, Lord, you would be pleased to grow your church in that land. Lord, we also want to continue to pray for our United Reformed Church missionaries. We pray for Chris Coleman, who's planting his uh, church in Vancouver, Washington. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be with him also. We pray, Lord, that you would provide for them a permanent place of worship, and that, Lord, as they are a young church, a fledgling congregation, that you would be pleased, Lord, to Raise up qualified and ready men who can serve as elders and deacons. And that as they have planted this church in a land where there's not a faithful witness, that you would be pleased, Heavenly Father, uh, to uh, bring members to this new congregation who will hear the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, that they, their hearts might be inflamed and that they might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your kingdom of God would be built all throughout the world and also in our congregation. Be with us, Lord, and be with our preaching and our teaching. Be, Lord, be with each and every one of us as we go our separate ways this evening for another week. Pray that you might work in our hearts that gospel of grace, that we might be able to manifest it to others, that others might be one to Christ through our godly walk, that your church might grow here and throughout Grand Rapids in the state of Michigan in the United States, that you would be pleased, Heavenly Father, to bless the United States. You would be pleased to grow your kingdom in and through our midst. Lord, we think even this evening, as we have come, asking for the greatest of blessings to hear and to know of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be pleased, Heavenly Father, to bless us, your people. Be pleased, Lord, to remove any sin that's in our hearts, be pleased, Lord, to take away any hindrances that may exist in our minds, in our spirits, or in our hearts that might take us from the truth of Your Word. Be pleased, Lord, to sanctify us through it. 
And that at the end of this worship service, we might depart and know in our hearts that it was good to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in his house, to be with his people this Sabbath day. So we ask God your divine benediction upon the word and upon your people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, our offering is for the Forgotten Man and the Crossroads Bibles. So we'll invite our deacons to come forward at this time, and we'll continue to worship the Lord through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Let us give thanks to the Lord for this offering. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. Thank you once again that we've had the opportunity to give, to worship you through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless it, that you would use it for your causes throughout the world. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the forgotten man in the Crossroads Bible. We ask your blessing upon them and their ministries, and that you, again, would be pleased to bless that ministry. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Our song of preparation this evening, once again from the Blue Psalter Hymnal. Hymn number 446, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, will stand and sing all of the stanzas of hymn number 446.
I'd like to invite you at this point in our worship service to turn with me in God's Word to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, This evening we'll be looking at verses 22 through 32, and then afterwards we'll turn in our forms and prayers to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We want to consider God's Word this evening under the heading of Faith on Troubled Waters. Faith on Troubled Waters from Matthew 14, beginning on verse, in verse 22. Immediately, He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowds. And after He had dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. And when evening came, He was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered Him, Lord, if it is You, Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the Word of the Lord. And may we receive it with a believing heart. Now we also want to turn to our confession this evening, which is on page 208 in the Burgundy Forms and Prayers book. And we will read all the questions of Lord's Day 7. And I would... Of course, we'll read the question and together with one voice, we'll respond in unison with the answer. Lord's Day 7. Beginning in question 20. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No, only those who are saved, who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. Question 22, what then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the Gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Dear congregation, where we last left off in the Heidelberg Catechism, we had just heard that there was one who could satisfy God's justice on our behalf. There was one man who could endure the wrath of God, the one who is both truly God and truly man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned up until this point that by Adam's transgression, he plunged, he and himself and his family and all who would come from him into sin. And then we join in Adam's sin when we commit sins ourselves. And we become arrested, if you will, by sin. Infatuated in love with sin and therefore helpless according to our own devices. In other words, because of our sinful state which we are born in, we cannot save ourselves, can we? But Lord's Days 5 and 6 tell us that there is One who has come. One who is greater than ourselves. Who has done what Adam failed to do. Who has borne God's wrath for us. Jesus Christ is His name. He has done what we cannot do. And just by way of reminder, if you still have your catechism book open, flip back to question 17 in Lord's Day 6. It says He does all of this in the middle there for us. That is that He endured the cross for us. He was shamed for us. He experienced God's wrath for us. He died for us. So that we could go to heaven. And this has led many people throughout church history to ask the question, if Christ has done it all, do I have any role in my salvation? If Jesus Christ has accomplished everything I need in order to be saved, what's my part in this? The Bible says, Our calling in response to what Christ has done is only to have faith and belief. Of course, we see this so evidently and beautifully pictured in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes, we must believe in Jesus Christ. Have faith 
in Jesus Christ. Faith is what we call a means. It's a tool, it's a channel by which we can grab onto Christ. We can take hold of what He offers us in the Gospel. And appropriate, that means take and make it ours, all that He offers. The Bible is actually very clear. All of us, every single man, woman, boy, and girl are called to have faith in Christ. But this Lord's Day is so important because so often faith is misunderstood. And we often put faith on one of two extremes. Faith can either be an intellectual exercise, as many make it out to be, or often it can be made an emotional exercise. I experienced this intellectual side of faith when I was younger, that there would be some people who would claim to be Christians because they have read the Bible before. Or because they were familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. Congregation, is that what true faith is? Or more common in our day is the idea that faith is an emotional exercise. Because I feel something, therefore I have faith. Or the reverse can also be true. Because I don't feel something, I don't have faith. What I want to suggest to you is that if our faith is mere intellect alone, or if our faith is mere emotion alone, we're actually putting hope in a misconception. Instead, the Scriptures say to have faith is to trust in Christ. Not just to trust in any old thing, but to trust that God will do everything that He has promised in the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we may not see how it will work out. Sometimes we may not understand how Christ will cause all these things to be. How He will fulfill His promises. But faith is so eloquently put. Remember in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It is a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our theme for our time together this evening. True faith calls us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith calls us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you that in three points. The necessity of faith, the essence of faith, and the content of faith. The necessity essence, and content of faith. When we consider the subject of faith, it may seem in some ways a little bit abstract to us. While researching this, I found that the philosophers had a lot more to say about faith than maybe we as Christians do. And I think the reason for that is because there's actually very few biblical images of faith. The faith is a uniquely human thing and there's nothing in this natural world that serves as a good analogy for faith. Animals don't seem to trust one another. 
trees don't seem to exhibit the qualities of faith. But where the Scriptures are short on pictures or images of faith, it's actually very long on examples of people who have faith. You only need to think of Hebrews 11, where by my count, I could be wrong depending on how you count it, but by my count, there are 17 examples of faith given in Hebrews chapter 11. People have faith. People are called to trust in Christ. And one example we have is our Scripture reading this evening in Matthew 14. The Bible story that we look at this evening comes to us on the heels of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has just multiplied the fish and the loaves. He has fed the 5,000. It's been a wonderful miracle. And He sends His disciples ahead of Him uh, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and He sends the multitudes home. And John tells us why. In John 6, the crowds almost started a riot after His feeding of the 5,000. This wonderful miracle led them to believe that Jesus needed to be made King over the people of Israel. Essentially, He needed to rebel against Caesar on their behalf. Of course, this isn't what Christ was called to do. Christ wasn't called to be the King of Israel. He was called to be the King of the world. And He would only be the King of the world by His death upon the cross. And so Christ, after being confronted with this great temptation, the temptation of skipping out on the cross and skipping out on His death, needed, verse 23 of Matthew 14, time to pray and to seek the will of His heavenly Father. So Jesus tells His disciples to head west. Which indicates that Jesus would have been somewhere on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so as evening comes, the disciples are well on their way. and Jesus is alone praying we see that a storm begins in the middle of the sea. And now, of course, some of you are aware of this. The naming of the Sea of Galilee a sea, in general, is actually a bit of a misnomer. It would have been more like a large lake. Matthew, in verse 24, actually even says in Greek that there were many stadia from the shore. A stadia was an ancient unit of measurement, possibly 100 to 200 yards. They were only three or four hundred yards away from Jesus praying on the shore. But the wind, Matthew says, is against them. Literally is hostile towards them. And Matthew adds a recording here and says that it was until the fourth watch of the night. Between 3 and 6, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they are toiling with, striving against the winds in the middle of the night, in the pitch black, rowing for hours and making no headway. I don't know about you, maybe you're more of a seafaring person, but I think this might be my worst nightmare. I think of the claustrophobia of the darkness that would have been in the middle of that lake. 
the tiredness that they must have felt in their muscles as they continue to row and toil against the winds, the frustration of the question, why did Christ send us into this storm? He knows all things. He just multiplied the fish and the loaves. Couldn't we have just walked around? Couldn't He have just calmed the sea or told us to wait until morning? Why does He send us ahead into this great storm? Think of this, dear congregation. Christ does all things for our spiritual good. While they are rowing, toiling, fearing, Christ is praying. And there's no doubt He's praying for their safety. Praying that they would be spared from the tempest. Praying that they would have strong faith. And He knowing their faith goes to them. Matthew says, in verse 26 and 27, 25, 26, and 27, that Christ walks out upon the Sea of Galilee towards them, using the storm as His pathway. The heaving and the falling waves were no hindrance to Him. He walks upon them And the disciples, if they were working towards the west, rowing, toiling, out of the corner of their eyes from the east, they see a man. And immediately they're filled with fear. And they begin to cry out, it's a ghost. But Jesus immediately says, take courage, it is I. Again, the Greek actually says, Take courage, ego eimi, which means take courage, I am. If you remember in Exodus, when God called Moses to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh, to go and to bring his people peace from the land of Egypt, Moses says, Who shall I say has sent me? And God says, Tell them, The I Am has sent you. Jesus says to them, take heart, be of courage. The I Am is with you in the storm. The I Am is the one interceding you. The I Am is the one who has come to save you. You need not be afraid. Here we see something of the heart of Christ towards sinners, don't we? That Christ is so moved by compassion to save His helpless disciples as they strive against the wind. But how much more so has Christ been moved to save helpless sinners such as us? When we speak about the subject of salvation and true and saving faith, young people in the room this evening you know what I'm talking about, that when we might talk with other people about saving faith and about the necessity of the Gospel, you might hear questions such as this. Why doesn't God save everyone? You you know what I'm talking about, don't you? How can a loving God send people to hell? You've heard questions such as this, I assume. But the wonder of grace 
isn't that God doesn't save everyone. The wonder of grace is that God saves anyone at all. Look at what the catechism has proved to us already at this point. Question 3 tells us that we are all lawbreakers. Question 5 says we hate God and our neighbor. Question 8 says we're inclined towards evil. Questions 9 and 10 say we are sinners who sin. With tears in our eyes, we have to recognize this evening that the catechism is right. Are all people saved through Christ just as they are lost through Adam? No. Not everyone is saved. Because not everyone trusts in Christ. Those who persist in sins and reject Christ will not be saved. The road to hell is broad. And don't we know it that hell is what we all deserve? You see, by our rights, by God's right, we should have been sunk, so to speak. Christ could have left His disciples in the middle of the sea. You don't trust Me to provide for the 5,000? You don't trust Me to send you ahead into My will? You don't trust Me to provide all you need? Good riddance with you. Let them sink in the middle of the lake. And none of us deserve heaven. We all know that. Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who among us hasn't sinned? Has anyone not sinned today? Any one of us not sinned within the last hour? But the good news of the Gospel is that there can be salvation through faith. To have faith, to believe, is that call that goes out to the world. It is the task of everyone in this room to believe upon Christ and then you will be saved. It is of a necessity. It's the only way in which we can be saved. Uh, The writer of Acts says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul elsewhere says faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We are all called to believe upon Christ. Because by faith, we become part of who Christ is. Our catechism says, only those who are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ. To be grafted into Christ as an analogy of husbandry where a gardener would take two separate plants and make them one. Christ is the root and we are the plant. And the root is then wounded. The stalk is cut and it bleeds so that you might take this plant, this foreign plant, and put it in the other. That we might be unified with Him. Notice, congregation, that word grafted in question 20. It is in the past tense. It is the passive voice, a.k.a. it is God's work. 
Just like a tree cannot graft itself into another tree, just like a plant cannot graft itself into another plant, so can we not graft ourselves, we cannot put ourselves in Jesus Christ. We need the hands of the gardener. Everyone is called to faith, but faith is also that gift of God. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, but it's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. Though faith is required, it's God Himself who gives the gift of faith. Sometimes we can find ourselves in the midst of life's storms, But what a comfort it is to know that Christ is praying for each and every one of us, for all of His saints in the midst of the storm. Sometimes we can feel like the disciples. Why would Christ leave us? Or if He's God, why can't He take this storm away? But Christ, being all-knowing and all-powerful, affirms that He allowed them to enter the storm, but He had never left nor forgotten His disciples within that storm. Dear congregation, this perspective keeps Christ at the center of our vision. That Christ does all things for our good. Even life's storms that come to us. Be reminded that Christ is praying and that Christ does all things for your good. Well, let's continue on. We want to see the essence of faith. We want to see now as we continue on in our story in Matthew 14, we see that Jesus is standing on the billowing waves. He has declared to His disciples, the I Am is with you. Jehovah is with you. So take heart. And what we see, of course, is that the ever brashful Peter cries out, Lord, if it is you, verse 28, command me to come to you on the waters. And there's two ways you can really interpret Peter's words. Either he's being reckless and immature, making much of that word if, Lord, if it is you. But I think Peter's words are actually more a deed of faith. That Peter was, in a sense, coming to grasp what it means to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That He can do all things through Christ. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter, does He? He says, come. Come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. The Bible says that Peter defies the laws of gravity and defies the laws of buoyancy because he was believing, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter's standing on the waves, imagine that scene in your mind for a moment this evening. His actions also show us what true faith is and what true faith is not. See, true faith is not intellectual alone. You see, if Peter went by what he believed to be true, what he knew to be true, of course he was a fisherman familiar with boats, his facts and his logic, he would not have trusted Christ to go out into that water, would he? Not only is faith alone 
or excuse me, not only is faith emotional alone. He was filled with fear. He was scared. He was tired. If we relegate faith only to that which we know in our intellect, or only to that which is emotional, our hearts still remain unmoved. Our hearts are still untouched. And don't we know, congregation, that there can be those whom we might even know in our lives who can say all the right things. They can have the catechism memorized. They're right about infant baptism. They have the right view of salvation and God's sovereignty and the right view of the millennium. But they don't trust in Christ. Likewise, there can be some who will feel and do great things for Jesus. The Lord Himself even says there will be those who will cast out demons in My name. Who I will say, depart from Me. I never knew you. Congregation, take this away from our time together this evening. True faith is not only a matter of the mind. True faith is not only a matter of the hands. True faith is a matter of the heart. Many of you likely memorized uh, question 21 uh, from the old version of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is found in the Blue Psalter Hymnal or older versions of the Heidelberg Catechism. Do you remember what it says in the middle of question 21? The Holy Spirit works in my heart. I don't know why it was changed in the new forms in the Trinity in the Forms and Prayers book here. But it really does capture the sense of the purpose of true faith. It isn't just to be in our minds. True faith is not only in the deeds of our hands or in the affections and our emotions, but true faith needs to be worked into our heart. Heart, of course, in the Scriptures refers not to the organ, but the idea is the center of who we are. The center of all of our beliefs. Faith needs to be something, an essential component of who we are. Now I want to be very clear this evening. True faith is not anti-intellectual or anti-emotional. As if you can't have any intellect and you need to walk with blind faith throughout all of your life. That's not the case at all. Or that you can never get excited about the things of the Lord. Now I know that's nearly blasphemy in a Dutch Reformed church. It's okay to be excitable. But look at what the Catechism says. It is not only a sure knowledge. It's not only by which I hold as true. True faith in a sentence is this. Trusting in what God has promised. But you need to know what God has promised. In other words, you need to have a certainty. You need to have a confidence. Accepting the truths of the Lord and then applying them to your own heart. As Peter is standing on the waves, he's an excellent picture of this. He accepts that Christ can do all things. And then he climbs over the bow of the boat and he applies it to his own life by standing on the waves and walking 
towards Jesus Christ. Peter's walking on the water, a word of application. Isn't it also a picture of our salvation, congregation? There was, Peter had no power in himself to walk on water. It doesn't come from within him. If he jumped over the gunwales without permission from Christ, what would have happened? He would have plummeted to the bottom of the lake. But Christ gave him the power. Christ gave him what he needed to in order for him to be standing over the laws of nature that he might come. Likewise, there is no power within ourselves. Faith is not, does not arise up naturally within us. But Christ works it in us. He brings it to bear within us. All we have to do is call out to Him. Finally, we want to see the content of faith. These are the last two questions of our catechism. And we won't deal with the Apostles' Creed since that's what's dealt with all the way to Lord's Day 22. But we want to notice what is the content of faith? What is it that that must be believed in order to be a Christian? If faith is a trust in what God has revealed, well, what aspects should we focus on? I'm sure you've all noticed, but the Bible is a very long book. How much do I need to know? And this is a good question because we know, we know all sorts of people who will try to get away with doing the bare minimum. And then there are people on the opposite side of the spectrum who expect way more than necessary. My pre-confession class knows what side I'm on on that. So what must a Christian believe? Look at question 22. All that is promised us in the Gospel. It doesn't say a little bit. Nor does it say everything. It doesn't say memorize this booklet or this whole systematic dogmatics. A Christian must believe the promises of the Gospel. You see, Peter's stroll on the waters didn't last very long. In fact, the greatest enemy of faith Doubt begins to take hold upon him when he sees the wind and he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. Now, thousands of sermons have been preached on Matthew 14, verse 30. But the basic truth is this. The content of faith is that we must keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We must keep our eyes on on Jesus Christ. As long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus, as long as his heart was trusting in his Master, he walked upon the waters. But as soon as his eyes began to be directed towards the waves and be directed towards the winds, his faith deserts him and he begins to sink. It's a beautiful illustration of faith. Keep your eyes on Christ. Trust in the promises of the Gospel. I don't think you or I will have the opportunity to walk on water. But I know all of us will have storms in our lives. All of us will 
encounter circumstances that threaten our peace or that weary us or that frustrate our faith, we might be like the disciples rowing into the wind saying, where is Christ? Why would He send me into this storm? Isn't the application here so simple, congregation? Don't look to the problems of life. If that's all you focus on, your faith will begin to sink. But keep your eyes on Christ. Trust in His promises to you. Jesus has promised that He would never leave you or forsake you. He has promised, even when your life feels like it's in ruin, that He is with you. He has promised that He is the God of you and your children, even when those children are rotten and make you want to pull your hair out and seem to exhibit every one of your bad qualities. They belong to Him. He has promised that He will forgive. He has promised that He will bring healing. He has promised that He will resurrect the dead. And on that last day, He has promised that He will not abandon you to God's judgment, but He will ransom you to glory. I know we all need peace. But money cannot bring peace like Jesus brings peace. A better spouse cannot bring peace like Jesus brings peace. Well-behaved kids, a good boss, good health cannot bring peace like Jesus brings peace. Our faith is often firm until adversity shows up. And So when we see the obstacles that face us and threat to steal our peace and our hearts begin to sink and our confidence vanishes, we need help. And so Peter here does the right thing. He cries out, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? Immediately, says Matthew, He reaches out and saves His disciple. Just like we sang in stanza three of He leadeth me. Clasp my hand in thine. O Lord, do not let your people go. And He will not. Now Christ does rebuke Peter. He says, O you of little faith, Why did you doubt? But please notice with me, dear flock, little faith is different from no faith. Peter did have faith. And by God's grace, he's trusting in Christ. But Peter needs to keep his eyes on Christ. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat with them, there is peace. He brings peace to the storm through faith. He can bring peace to the storms of your life as well. And so, dear friends, in conclusion, God calls each and every one of us to entrust ourselves to the Lord and to His Word. But you do not need to fear the call to faith. 
For God is the one who works faith in our hearts. All we are called to do is to trust in Him and to keep your eyes upon Him. And He will bring peace in the midst of life's storms. Amen. Let's pray. Our merciful Father, we give You thanks this day that You have called each and every one of us to a true and living faith. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that You would work that faith in our hearts. That, Lord, You would be pleased to grant this gift to Your people here this evening. If there be any among us, Lord, who have not yet embraced You, Lord, in true faith, we pray, Heavenly Father, that You might kindle that desire in their hearts. Lord, we also pray for Your people here As we know for many of us, Lord, we are in live storms. Having families is hard. Working is hard. Being a part of a church is hard. Being in this world is hard. And sometimes we feel like the disciples did. But Lord, we pray that we might keep our eyes upon You and know that when You are with us, we need not fear. We pray for that peace. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd invite you now to stand and respond to God's Word. We'll turn in the Trinity Psalter hymnal to hymn number 427. In the Trinity Psalter hymnal, 427, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew.
And then our doxology this evening will be hymn number 90A, stanzas 1 and 7 of 90A, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. God has called you, congregation, to this place. He has fed you by His own hand, and now He sends you out with His benediction. Receive it now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.